y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be taking a little bit of a flashback Friday look, uh, seeing as this is Friday while we're recording this, going over a couple of the issues surrounding local politicians here in Los Angeles as well as down in San Diego, uh, and you can probably guess who we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to also talk about some big updates relating to the president of the city council of the city of Los Angeles, uh, as well as an update relating to the vacant unit article that we discussed last week or two weeks ago, rather at this point, uh, along with a, you know, a renewal of 8502 that is working its way through the council process. A uh, quick update on some bus shelter news because we love to talk about those things. Uh, some interesting stuff going on with an independent news rag down in the Orange County area. And then we're going to tie it all together at the end there. So how's it going, Bushido? It's going pretty well. Today is uh, December 6th. Is there 6th. anything going on today? Yes. It's a climate <laughs> strike. Uh, there are more than yes, 3,000 actions planned across the world. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, because I'm probably not getting Hell it up yeah. until Saturday, they will have happened That's and true. they will have been amazing. Uh, I'm helping lead the Phoenix climate strike. We're going out to City Hall. It's oh. going to be really good. Uh, there's one happening in L.A. There's one happening pretty much everywhere. Yes. Um, it, there will be more coming up. It looks like the next big coordinated worldwide action is going to be the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. So get ready for that one yeah. because people are really excited and we're also going to have like a few months to plan and make that big. I did want to say so uh, earlier this week on Wednesday, uh, Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council, who is like the worst collection of ghouls and shit heels in America, yeah. got together here in <laughs> uh, Scottsdale, technically, but sort of, you know, a suburb of oh, Phoenix, no. um, to do one of their, like, corruption fests. Uh, they were at the Westin Kierland, which is like a big <laughs> resort out there. So we showed up there. Well, I, Sunrise Phoenix showed up there. I showed up there myself. Uh, the action was led by Puente and uh, Mijente and Lucha AZ, as well as Black Lives Matter Phoenix and the several other groups that are escaping me at the moment. The big reason we were doing this was the Center for Constitutional Rights, which is a, like, kind of catch-all nonprofit that sues in order to protect civil rights, was suing ALEC and the Arizona State Legislature for violating open meetings laws. Basically, what they were saying was there were so many ah. GOP legislators there who belonged to certain committees that it technically constituted a quorum oh, yeah. of those committees, yeah. and therefore, by law, had to be a public meeting. So trying to hide yourself in a private resort is illegal and you have to let the public in. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of so cops there. It's just there. like the Brown Act here in California. Yeah, exactly. And there were a lot of cops there of all stripes. They even had like SWAT team vans out there. There were a few guys with body what? armor hanging around. They kept them out of sight. What? They didn't come out for any reason because like we were just chanting and standing on the sidewalk and, you know, doing our thing, which we're allowed to do under the First Amendment. Uh, at one point, I remember seeing like five cops on bicycles roll up and then they got really like sad looking because they realized we weren't doing anything. So they just went and hung out in a parking lot across the street. <laughs> uh, we attracted a couple of counter protesters. We attracted like one guy who stood across the tr street yelling something about dark money. I don't know if he was saying like it's Wait, good or what? we're funded by dark money. Um, I, it what? was hard to tell because he was across How a busy street. How do you counter protest? 
Well, he was across a busy street with a broken megaphone, and it's like, dude, we can't hear you. Like, we don't know what you're saying. Uh, then there was another guy who was an attendee at the meeting who was just, like, walking around saying kind of, like, sarcastic stuff, and then, you know, people would set upon him with facts, and he, you know, eventually was kind of talked down. And eventually the cops were like, you're just causing problems. You need to, like, back off now. So um, that was kind of funny to see. Uh, and then my favorite brand of pro uh, counter-protester made several appearances, and that's, like, a white guy in a big truck who's speeding by who tries to scream yeah. something at you but you don't know what he's saying what? because he's speeding and yep. you only catch half a word so yep. you just see this like lifted f-250 going by and here like yeah and you're like damn you got us dude <laughs> exactly what you said oh uh, yeah so uh but all in all the really discourse. good action got a lot of press for it um alec is definitely one of those groups we want to shine a spotlight on because they do a lot of terrible stuff here in arizona they're responsible for sb 1070 the show me your papers law they're responsible for a lot of the laws across the country that are criminalizing protests especially pipeline and fossil fuel extraction protests so if you're not familiar with alec uh, i'm going to put the links in the description where you can read about the lawsuit and the report alec attacks about all of the terrible stuff they're involved in uh, and yeah, they're really bad. There's also a John Oliver segment where he talks about yeah, them. Yeah, I was going to say. So if you get the chance, look into them and, you know, make sure your legislators aren't showing up to, like, do the corruption with them. Uh, how about your week, yep. Chris? How, how'd your week go? Uh, my week's been pretty pretty tame. I've been dealing with, uh, you know, domestic issues relating to my living situation in Los Angeles, but that's totally fine and nothing I should really complain about. Uh, also, just, you know, trying not to get sick with whatever this is that I feel like I'm coming down with because air travel during the holidays puts you in such close proximity with confined, you know, air circulation, uh, recirculation rather in those airplanes coming back from the uh, from the holidays, spending time with my family in Colorado. Uh, I think I caught something on the flight and I'm struggling to keep from really coming down with it full bore. So I apologize if I'm kind of a bit sniffly here on the other side of the microphone. But yeah, it's been, uh, you know, very cool, cold and rainy here in Los Angeles. I've been paying attention to what all my friends have been out there uh, fighting in the rain for the yep. good fight and uh, dealing specifically with a lot of issues relating to providing uh, dry socks, underwear, uh, some other clothing as well, warm clothing for the unhoused population. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially uh, in, in K-Town and also a, a bunch of people in um, in the Skid Row area where one of my friends was out, uh, you know, one of my friends from K-Town for All was out walking the streets in K-Town after uh, one of her uh, shifts was up in the morning and she was just taking stock of what was going on and, and found that you know, so many of the streets in Skid Row particularly are are, are dealing with this really bad situation of drainage where well, that flooding the drains was, don't work. That flooding was so epically bad. I mean, it was like knee yeah. high on some of those streets. Yeah, exactly. And it's you know, this is just absolutely deplorable that the city has let these things let these situations get to this extent. And you know, our unhoused neighbors are sitting out there soaking wet and having to deal with the cold. And it's no wonder, like we, we mentioned um, last time that we were on here, uh, what the, how dire the implications of, these, of this rain really are for the people that are living on the streets because you can easily get hypothermia, even in weather that's only 50 degrees, because it's you know just a question of your ability to be warm has a, a direct correlation to how dry you are. Like if you are wet, it is very hard for your body to overcome that barrier when it comes to the 
the wicking away of the heat from your body. Uh, and not so to, not to just people... mention all the other stuff like uh, uh, walking pneumonia or the fact that you can oh, develop yeah. like really bad bacterial and fungal infections from being wet all the time. Yes. That's why socks and yeah. underwear are really important. Like all of these little things that we take for granted because L.A.'s terrible air quality mixed with like a lot yep. of wetness and coldness is a good recipe it's, for you catching some sort of an infection in your lungs. And then you don't have any safe, dry place to go. Uh, and it, yep. it becomes a real issue, especially when you're then reliant on an emergency room for care, you know, it, because the emergency room is there to stabilize you. And if you're unhoused, they pretty much, you know, get you ambulatory and then are like, go away now. So these yep. issues can turn chronic very quickly and deadly. Like, we know that three people a day, you know, at a minimum are dying on the streets of Los Angeles. And during a period of time like this, it's probably a lot higher. And I've seen several friends posting about stumbling onto uh, the corner doing their thing when they got home because yeah. somebody who was living on the street on their block around their, their place of work just died suddenly because of the cold or whatever. Yeah. And it's just like, that's not something you expect to see all of the time. But if you know what to look for yeah. in L.A., you see it pretty often. Yeah, and the brutal, brutal irony of this is that, um, you know, the city provides a tent for you once you're dead uh, while the coroner is doing their work, uh, something that they cannot seem to be able to provide when you're still alive. So yep. thank you, city of Los Angeles, uh, for to, yeah. completely leaving them out in the cold. Literally. And to, to kind of put a fine point on this before we get into the news, the city of L.A., or actually I believe the county of L.A. just had its memorial and burial for the remains of people whose remains were unclaimed. Uh, it was more than 1,400 people oh. this year alone. Uh, wow. People who passed away with either family that couldn't claim them or whose identities weren't known. Um, many of them were unhoused. Almost all of them lived in in poverty, um, even if they were housed. Uh, these were people who passed from this earth and didn't have anyone there to remember them. Um, and that number goes up every single year. You know, So this isn't just an issue for those of us that work with the unhoused population, this is a deeper societal dysfunction that we're dealing with, where people are so yeah. alienated and so pulled apart from each other, despite the fact that we live in a highly dense city like L.A., that 1,400 people can die in a year, and no one knew who they were. So, uh, yeah, on that a little bit of a somber note, let's, uh, let's cheer ourselves up by ripping into a Republican. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Duncan Hunter, uh, son of uh, same well, name. Before, before we get into that, yes. so this we're, we're doing this. This is a, our flashback Friday here, where we're going back uh, yeah. into the news from stuff that happened back in 2018, over a year ago that we first talked about this stuff. Um, but yeah, go ahead and, and, and yeah. Kick us so off with this so one. Duncan Hunter, who has the same name as his father, Duncan Hunter, which I'm pretty sure is why Duncan <laughs> Hunter Jr. keeps winning elections, is because people think they're voting for his father, who was the longtime uh, House huh. of Representative member down there in eighty or sorry CD fifty three. Uh, Duncan yeah. Hunter was under investigation for a lot of corruption, uh, still won like pretty handily in the last election, but it looks like his political mm -hmm. career may actually be coming to an end finally. It, it may, yes. So he is the congressman from San Diego. That's in case you didn't know where the 53rd congressional district was. Um, so back in 2018, we talked about this scandal really exploding. Um, and he has now pled guilty to one of the counts uh, relating to the, his rampant misuse of campaign funds. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and quote him here. Uh, when he was talking to the news afterward, he said, quote, the plea I accepted is misuse of my own campaign funds, of which I pled guilty to only one count. I think it's important that people know what I did, that I did make mistakes. I did not properly monitor or account for my campaign money. 
<laughs> yeah, you did. Uh, I justify my plea with the understanding that I am responsible for my own campaign and my own campaign money. End quote. So for some context on this one, around six months ago, Hunter's wife, uh, who coincidentally is also his form, former campaign manager, Margaret Hunter, uh, pled guilty to a single count of conspiracy and agreed to testify against her husband. Um, Which is kind of probably, amazing. Like she, must, she must have an axe to grind with him because you cannot compel oh, a spouse to testify yeah. against their spouse. Like you have to choose to do that. Because well, I think it so turned out he, guessing, was, he was having some affairs, yes, I, I seem, to, yeah, seem to remember. A few. <laughs> so her guilty plea uh, and this decision to testify against her husband probably had something to do with the fact that uh, there was an uncovering of his uh, extramarital affairs with at least five different women over Holy the years. Shit. And of course, Hunter also spent campaign funds illegally as part of those affairs. So... Uh, the money that she, as his campaign manager, was supposed to be aware of what was going on with, uh, he was spending that money on trysts with other women. Um, yeah, so I'm guessing that there is a serious axe to grind there. And so just as a quick reminder, because it is so glorious, uh, we'll go through how they were spending this campaign funds, allegedly, uh, which he tried at one point to blame on his wife and throw her under the bus. So that was fun. Um, this is a, a key paragraph from the Justice Department statement that we read into the podcast back in August last year, but it's it's worth repeating. Quote, a 48-page indictment details scores of instances beginning in 2009 and continuing through 2016 in which the hunters illegally used campaign money to pay for personal expenses that they could not otherwise afford. The purchases include family vacations to Italy, Hawaii, Phoenix, Arizona, and Boise, Idaho, uh, school tuition, dental work, theater tickets, and domestic and international travel for almost a dozen relatives. The hunters also spent tens of thousands of dollars on smaller purchases, including fast food, movie tickets, golf outings, video games, specifically Steam games, coffee, groceries, home utilities, and expensive meals. And uh, one of the really fun things here is that one of the tickets that they spent, um, I think it was like 450 bucks on or something like that, um, was a ticket for their family's pet rabbit, yeah. uh, Egbert. Yep. to fly with them on one of these trips. So, yeah, he's just awful. And this does absolutely pick up the mood after all that song I mean, discussion it, earlier. So it, It's also yes. funny that he's a gamer lawmaker. Like, he spent oh, several yeah. hundred, if not like a couple <laughs> thousand dollars on the Steam store, like just buying so many video games. And you're oh, like, yeah. how would you have time to play those even if you weren't ostensibly, no, no, no. supposedly a lawmaker? Um, but yeah, I, I would say, you know, like, we need to ban gamers from Congress, but it turns out that AOC's a gamer, so I guess it's a little bit of a mixed bag there. No. Um, Don't ban the gamers from Congress. Just ban the guy that is rampantly spending campaign money on a gaming habit that he... I mean, I'm, I'm guessing based on the number of games that he was purchasing that he was not playing them. He just was like, oh, that looks like fun, and he thought yeah. of his campaign funds as just a giant slush fund that had no accountability tied to it, um, and he, uh, didn't get away with it, but he thought he was going to. And so this is what, $250,000, $200,000 or so worth of campaign funds that he and his wife, um, apparently misused. And, uh, yeah, so now that he has pled guilty to this single count, as he likes to point out, the house ethics community has stripped him of his right to vote on matters before the house. So he's sitting there. Uh, collecting a paycheck and actively blocking someone else from executing that office and actually representing his constituents in the role of a duly elected official on a legislative body. And why did I just drag out that declaration uh, for as many syllables as I did? 
Um, because it's eerily reminiscent of what my city councilman has been doing for the last 13 months. And yes, so we're going to yeah. talk a little bit about our favorite city council member when it comes to rampant corruption, Jose Huizar. And so, this one, this Huizar story also has a nice little tie-in with the burgeoning marijuana industry in L.A. Uh, yeah, and that's a weird little footnote we'll put on this about like how corrupt the process of getting a license is. But yeah, this uh, Huizar's staff is just coming with the long knives repeatedly and repeatedly oh, yeah. and repeatedly. Um, I, I, you know, at this point, it's like probably a good 30% of his staff has turned state's witness against the guy. Uh, and he's still collecting a paycheck. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. So our situation here in LA is different from what's going on with Duncan Hunter because, uh, Huizar can still vote on matters before the council, but he was stripped of all of his committee roles, which if you know much about city council, as you are a listener to this podcast means you probably do. Uh, the actual business of the council is largely conducted in, uh, these committees because of the unbelievable de facto voting system that we have in place that results in, if memory is serving me correctly, more than 99% of the votes on the floor of the council chamber uh, come out unanimously. Um, so even, you know, we, we did have a Republican on the council for a while. Um, we still do. Actually, pretty much. We, is, is he really? John Lee. Eh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's, I, he's still I GOP. He's couldn't remember just, if he was declared Just CD12. It is the only district that's been represented by a Republican for like almost yeah. a decade now. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, so it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Though Weezar, sometimes, but they still don't vote. <laughs> yeah, though I will say Weezar has sat out a lot of votes. Like it's kind of known that he's yes, persona he non grata. So he's just kind of stayed home and just isn't really around all that much and nobody really cares. Yeah, so our second flashback is coming from September through November of 2018, um, back when, uh, what was it? It was two lawsuits were announced by former staffers uh, alleging workplace harassment and retaliation relating to a, an apparent new affair. Uh, this comes after Jose Huizar had apparently settled out of court for another harassment, sexual harassment case brought against him by his former, I believe it was deputy chief of staff, um, which I believe was settled in 2015. I'm doing this all from memory because I didn't uh, write down enough notes on this stuff. But anyway, that affair was uh, all settled and paid for. And then apparently he was added again with another staffer and two members of his staff then uh, filed a lawsuit after alleging that they were being harassed for complaining about that new affair, uh, along with a number of other things, including uh, one of his staffers, Apparently, he would text her from the council chambers uh, just the word T over and over and over again until she brought him a uh, tray of tea because that's the way he likes it. So, uh, yeah, anyway, the uh, oh, yeah. And then, uh, of course, the uh, FBI <laughs> uh, raided his offices as well as his home the day after the 2018 election. And then shortly thereafter, he was stripped of all of those committee roles because um, they were coming after him for the campaign finances and fundraising because there was a, literally a cardboard box that was carried out of his home labeled fundraising. 
and they had taken a sniffer dog in to look for USB drives and other things like that. So uh, basically, the, this is this is the the first paragraph from an article in the LA Times written by David Zanizer uh, that was published right before Thanksgiving. Quote, an aide to Los Angeles City Councilman Jose Huizar has filed a $10 million legal claim against the city, alleging the councilman retaliated against him after he spoke with federal investigators about possible criminal activity involving his boss. So uh, the staffer in question is Jesse Leon, uh, Leon, who claims that Huizar had attempted to extort money or solicit bribes from operators of cannabis businesses. So uh, the rub here is that Huizar is then claiming a, that Leon was actually behaving unethically by applying to qualify for a license to sell cannabis through a regulatory mechanism that he had helped set up himself. Uh, Leon did not actually apply for this permit, despite what Huizar says, um, but he did apply to qualify for one. Yeah. It's a complete mess. It's, um, I mean, the whole, so like, the whole applying for a permit to, to be able to oh, sell yeah. marijuana legally in the city of, of Los Angeles has kind of been known to be like very corrupt yes. and sort of arbitrary and capricious the entire time. Uh, city council seems intimately involved with it as to like who gets permits and who doesn't. There's a lot of well, kind of individual council of, members have dis, have complete control over who gets a permit within their district. Is the is yeah, the yeah? And there's rub, been right? a lot of there's been a lot of insinuations of pay to play scandals, but none of them have like really come to light. No, but there's like pay to play. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of whispers that like city council has had their thumb on the scale that they don't want full legalization to happen, and that's one of the reasons that like Herb Wesson has been calling for a moratorium. And even though we have Prop 64, it's become very hard to legally open a cannabis business, especially in like distressed yeah. areas. So that's why a lot of the people who own oh, yeah. cannabis businesses tend to look white is they can open them in nice areas and they can uh, secure the funds that you need to do that. Because, again, like a lot of these businesses are unbanked. It so you've got to be coming to the table with your yep. own capital. You can't go to a bank and get yep. financing like you can for most yep. new businesses. Well, I mean, you can get private capital from venture capital firms that are making shitloads of money on all of this stuff because again they see it as an incredible business opportunity for you know for exactly the reasons that you just stated like you can only do this kind of because the because of federal um, drug rules surrounding banking you cannot do any of this banking with a bank you must do everything in cash which means that the only way that you can get that kind of cash is by getting it from somebody who's got a whole bunch of cash that they're sitting on. And as you rightly pointed out, the people who receive this are overwhelmingly white and rich in the first place. And so it's a perpetuation of the incredibly discriminatory practices surrounding the entire war on drugs and yeah. mass incarceration. Uh, one of the other things is that, you know, if you've got a any kind of a criminal history um, or record rather with uh, our justice system purportedly uh, surrounding the you know use or distribution of marijuana, you are effectively disqualified from engaging in the legal business of using or distributing marijuana because that's just how it works, folks. Uh, you know, it's it's incredibly corrupt. But and yeah, we um, don't even have to go into the racialized statistics around who gets busted no. for weed and who doesn't. <laughs> But well, let's just quick, uh, quickly getting back to Huizar here. He emailed a statement to reporters saying, quote, Jesse was, in fact, intimately involved in creating the ordinance for the program for which he and his wife applied. After discussion with Jesse, we concluded that he failed to provide truthful accounts of his actions, end quote. Um, and yeah, so this is just 
it's 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 weird. Yeah, um, Weezer is basically alleging mess. retaliation that you know he yeah. he stopped Jesse from being able to get the the permit that he wanted, and that's why Jesse is now coming out with these charges, which are kind of like unrelated yeah. to the permitting process. But it's kind of a weird one with Weezer. He's done the same thing over and over again where he, as soon as a lawsuit breaks or like one of his staffers speaks out against him, he suddenly points to all this corruption that they did in his office. And Which I mean, is, I don't know yeah. if it's just like Machiavellian <laughs> smart. Like if I hire a bunch of corrupt people for my office, they'll let me do corrupt <laughs> stuff, but then I'll also have dirt on them when they try and come after me or really what's going on there. But you know, when it comes down to it, it doesn't seem like any of, of the, you know, mud that Weezar is slinging is really going to help him when it comes to this FBI case and, like, the corruption case that's being built against him. But then again, that case may never come to light. Like, the Justice Department's been sitting on it for almost two years now. So one has to wonder, like, are you ever going to take this guy to trial? Like, are you ever actually going to do anything? And where does that investigation stand? Especially when we saw um, Ocean Plaza has now gone up in smoke. Like, that's not going to be built. And that Chinese capital was one of the biggest points in that FBI investigation was that Weezar was taking payoffs to allow those kinds of developments and that development specifically. Yeah, so um, this brings up one of the other things that we've always liked to talk about here on the podcast of um, taking vacant property that is sitting there and not doing anything. Uh, That would be a great one. Uh, to see the city take over and turn into something actually useful rather than just a mega luxury loft and um, shopping complex. But I digress. I say we make like Garcetti lock himself in it and just kind of have like a Howard Hughes type life where he's just locked (laughs) in this big glass tower just full of empty rooms and he can't really like get out but he can look (laughs) over his city. But as we imagine a, a better future for Eric Garcetti in his glass tower of an unfinished <laughs> condo building, uh, there's some big moves happening at the city council president level. Uh, so the city council president is the position for the person who kind of determines what the agenda is for City Hall. They're responsible for much so, running yes. the meetings. They kind of, I believe they decide committee appointments to an extent. Uh, but yes. it, it's kind of like the first among equals. It's been held by Herb Wesson for a while. He is obviously leaving city council because A, he's termed out, and B, he wants Mark Ridley Thomas's seat at uh, the county board for District 2. So he uh, has passed off his responsibilities, and he had a couple of interesting uh, chosen successors here. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so this was the day before Thanksgiving that Herb Wesson announced that he was going to be stepping down as the city council president effective in January. Uh, He endorsed Nuri Martinez uh, for the role when he was announcing his uh, departure. So it's worth pointing out Wesson was actually the first African-American to serve as the president of the council. Um, But as you pointed out, he is stepping down to move into uh, focus rather on the larger campaign that he is simultaneously running while performing this duty, um, to trying to replace Mark Ridley Thomas on the LA County Board of Supervisors. Of course, Mark Ridley Thomas is also running to replace Herb Wesson because they're both termed out and their districts heavily overlap. Swappy, and wouldn't swappy. it be convenient if they can both just preserve their power or grow it, depends on how you look at it, um, to do that swap. So They also have a Wesson lot in common. Is, course, you know, they, they seem to have a lot of corruption uh, tied in with yeah, their with their yeah. kids, so there's a lot of like parallels here. <laughs> yeah, so of course Wesson is also being challenged for that board of supervisors seat by Holly Mitchell, uh, Mitchell, our state senator for the area. So I'm actually in her state senate district 
um, but I'm not in Margaret Lee Thomas's supervisorial district, nor am I in Wesson's city council district. Um, but you know, our districts are all over the map, no pun intended. Um, the, uh, also worth pointing out that Mark Ridley Thomas is being challenged by like 12 or more candidates for that council seat, including a former member of the LADWB commissioning commissioners, um, Aura Vasquez, as well as a teenage activist. Uh, 2020, 2020 is definitely going to be a lot of fun, but let's get back to the issue at hand. So Nuri Martinez will become the first Latina to serve as president of the LA City Council. She represents the 6th District in Northeast San Fernando Valley and is the daughter of Mexican immigrants and grew up in the city of Pacoima. Uh, or this city, town, I don't know how you describe it because it's still technically part of the city of Los Angeles, right? Yeah, no, it it, it is, but it's sort of like its own little city within a city. Yeah. Uh, it's also a place where, like, power does a lot of organizing. Yes, so, uh, we we do kind of have a relationship with Nuri and have like worked with her on a lot of affordable housing issues because Bacoima also has a big block of uh, of public housing up there. Yes, it does. Um, it's kind of public housing throughout the city of LA is spread in weird little pockets. And Pacoima has like a surprisingly large amount of it. What's also interesting is Pacoima, which is very working class, sits basically right next to very wealthy areas in like Porter Ranch and Chatsworth. And so you have a very interesting economic dynamic kind of going on mm-hmm. up there. And one of the reasons why Pacoima juts right up against the Republican leaning CD 12. Yeah. And that explains some of what's going on. Uh, but we'll get into that in a minute before we move forward. She is the second woman ever elected to head the city council. So this is uh, good for the city of LA in many respects of keeping diversity of representation at the upper levels. But uh, there's a darker side to this because as you just mentioned, Nuri's district does border right up against CD12, and it does have some more right-wing leanings than other parts of the city. And we've seen that specifically in regard to the way that Nuri has talked about um, homelessness situations. And particularly, one of the things that comes to mind is when we were there for the protest in uh, relating to another issue that we're going to talk about later on in the po- in the podcast, um, the renewal of 8502 uh, at the beginning of the summer, really, when we were there to talk about this, she got up and shouted at us, um, basically denouncing all of the protesters who were there, demanding that 8502 not be reinstated. And she claimed uh, that most of her constituents were at work rather than showing up to protest against this move. Um, so she's got some active hostility against anyone who's trying to fight for a better life of the uh, most precariously positioned of the working class Angelinos because 8502 particularly impacts people who do have jobs and who are just struggling to be able to make enough money to rent um, because of the complete lack of any movement by our city council to do anything about the rental housing crisis that we're going through. But I digress. So, yeah. Uh, after the announcement on Tuesday, in like literally the same day, there was a, uh, a meeting of the City Council's Energy, Climate Change, and Environmental Justice Committee, ECCEJ, which we were thrilled to announce uh, or see the announcement uh, in the forming of, uh, what was that, last um, April? I'm trying to remember exactly yeah, for when the, this all the, happened. The climate management department or yeah. climate emergency management office now, they they didn't give us a department. They they no. chickened out at the last minute. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was going to say it's, it's interesting because this is something I was thinking about is the way that committees have responsibilities delegated to them is yeah. really kind of 
weird because ECCEJ yeah. is now making demands of the Care and Care Plus teams. Yeah, so exactly. it's kind of it's very wobbly what the committee name means versus what the committee is actually controlling. Yeah, so specifically, uh, the, the, what, we're, what we're getting at is the, the exact same thing here, because she was airing concerns relating to what Care and Care Plus teams were doing relating to the visible debris that's lining our city streets, um, which she said has uh, been a particular nuisance to the residents of the San Fernando Valley. Um, this appears to be, uh, you know, to my ears, uh, a, a, a bit of a coded language for uh, the tents, um, because that's, I mean, pretty obvious that care and care plus teams were the, you know, the new updates to the way that the city is dealing with these sweeps of homelessness encampments. Uh, we just saw changes introduced back in what the beginning of October. And, uh, yes. we, we were seeing these new changes that were introduced that demanded that LASA have outreach workers present when they do these sweeps. And now, you know, like literally two months later, Nuri, as you know, her one of the first things she does once she becomes president-elect of the city council is to say, "Hey, y'all are doing a bad job with this. You need to do something that's more, uh, more effective at cleaning up the streets, uh, or the sidewalks, or whatever." Because th this is just—it's terrifying for those of us who are trying to, you know, fight to protect the rights of these unhoused folks. Because it, you know, this is literally just telegraphing the need to be more. Uh, more more aggressive in the policing of uh, of what you know the city is doing in terms of fifty six eleven uh, and, and bulky mm -hmm. item collection and tents and enforcement. So I'm worried about where this is going. But um, there, well, there's so also something I do want to point out because Nuri talked about this during the climate emergency yeah. management uh, negotiations, and then also when she came and spoke at uh, the Road to a Green New Deal, was that you know her district, especially the parts of it like in Sunland and Tahunga, and as you get up towards the Angeles National Forest, really do have problems with drainage, and like when it rains this in LA. True. All of that water coming off the mountains collects in those areas because the city just hasn't the city and especially Caltrans haven't built the infrastructure to deal with it. So you get Sunland flooding because basically once the five starts to take on water, Caltrans is like open the floodgates and just dumps all of that water into the city streets, which aren't capable of draining all of that water. So, yeah. and a lot of it does come from illegal dumping. And also that's where like the biggest dumps in the city are in Nuri's district. But it seems like, She's conflating two problems in order yes. to vilify people who are living unhoused. And it's also yeah. a weird one where the Care and Care Plus teams have only been doing their thing for, you know, three, four months at this time. And Not she's either. like, why haven't you fixed the problem? We need to go back yeah. to the old style of punitive sweeps. And it's like, hold the hell on there, lady. Like, let's give it a year, right? Yeah. Like, this isn't an issue that's going to get fixed immediately, especially when, like, the Care and Care Plus teams or charting new ground for the way the city does this. Like, the institutional knowledge and institutional momentum before this has been to criminalize and punitively sweep encampments and to push unhoused people as far away as quickly as possible. If you're changing the way that those teams operate, you've got to give them a while to get up to speed on that, to, to build the bureaucratic networks, connections, and strength to be able to, yes. to, like, actually effectively manage that model. So it seems like, you know, your fears might be justified that city council 
basically, uh, you know, okayed the care and care plus teams and then is ready to pull the plug immediately because they're like, oh, you know what? We tried it and it didn't work. I guess we better just go back to the old way that we know quote unquote works, uh, which I, I feel like the city council does this a lot where they have an experiment that is designed to fail where they do something that they know yes. they don't really support, but they have to get the activists off their back and they want to provide political cover where they're like, oh yeah, we tried that thing that these crazy people are saying and you know what? It didn't fix the problem immediately, so we just told LAPD to be even meaner. Yeah, so this actually ties in really well with something else that happened in the same meeting because Councilman Mitchell Farrell chimed in saying, quote, I understand it. Uh, is what I understand is that it has gotten better in recent weeks. I just want to make sure that we have a complete reboot of who we listen to. We, the council, have to lead in prioritizing these jobs. We're talking about care and care plus. It's all really great, but none of it will work if we're taken out of the decision-making process, end quote. So um, that ties into something that we have heard happened uh, this week, actually, relating to a sweep in the Echo Park area uh, where there was a, 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 you know, suddenly sanitation was there at the park um, or at, at an encampment uh, getting ready to do a sweep, and there was no one from Lhasa to be found. So apparently this was happening where sanitation was, was, was backing up folks from the parks services, which is, you know, somehow independent of what was going on with uh, the 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 sweep structure that we're we're used to seeing, where it's coordinated with LASA and sanitation together, uh, to do these things, and there's you know supposed to be 72 hour notice and all of these other requirements, which are very good to have in place to actually try to protect people's property. Um, but the uh, the LASA workers were actually actively involved elsewhere at the time and uh, were purportedly directed to be, you know, sanitation was purportedly directed to be in the area to clean things up in preparation for an event, specifically the 20th commemoration of Thai Town, uh, where they wanted to have the streets be clean before the event takes place because uh, this is a repeated pattern that we have seen over and over again. And this is exactly what happened with, uh, or eerily reminiscent at least, of what happened when uh, Joe Reyes was, uh, his encampment that he was in was swept in preparation for the inauguration or some kind of inauguration-related party for our new chief of the LAPD when his uh, position was announced. Uh, you know, when Joe Reyes' tent was confiscated and all of his belongings, including his heart medication, were taken from him, um, and then he died two weeks later of heart failure. So... This this is the kind of behavior that was supposed to have ended with the introduction of Care and Care Plus. Um, yep. And it's explicitly, con it's, it's continuing. And it's continuing um, apparently, allegedly, under the explicit instruction of members of the council, uh, specifically uh, the member who we just quoted. So, Mitch. Yeah. Thanks, Mitch. Um, yeah, it's, this is, it's just, we, <laughs> this program is new. Like you said, it's going to take time for people to be able to do this, like to get things figured out, to understand what's going to go on. Interacting with our unhoused population requires the establishment of personal connections and relationships. And it's really just absurd that we are seeing, you know, the, the plug being pulled on this or the, or the rug being swept out from underneath the, these workers 
Um, and they're not even being allowed to, to actively do what they're supposed to do. Like if this sweep really was done the way that, you know, rumors are saying it's been done where Lhasa was specifically left out of the loop intentionally by a council member, uh, then, you know, this, if, if that is what happened, that's insane because this is, this runs yep. completely counter to what the care and care plus model was supposed to do where outreach was supposed to be the focus of what is happening well, when also, we have sanitation going in and, and, and interacting with these, uh, these this population because Lhasa needs to be there so it becomes you know less hostile and shitty. Well, and it, it destroys the trust that Lhasa has been 100%. able to build recently. 100%. You know, when Lhasa comes out and says, like, we want to get you housed, you can trust us, and then sanitation shows up and throws out all the people's stuff, like, word on the street spreads quickly. And yes. if Lhasa is seen as not damaging. being fair or not doing their job or not being truthful with people, they're not going to trust them. There's a lot of reasons that you don't want to go into a shelter. Like, a lot of them are you know, not safe. They're not really well-maintained. There's a lot of BS that comes along with it. We've talked about this before. But what Lhasa has been doing recently, especially with a lot of their hires, is rebuilding that trust and giving themselves yeah. the capacity to be seen as an honest broker in this city. It takes a while to do this. Like, living on the streets is traumatizing. It takes Absolutely. time to get somebody to trust you, to overcome that trauma, to see that, like... You're offering them a better option. And every time sanitation LAPD does this stuff, it destroys that ability to move forward. And it just feeds the NIMBY argument of like, oh, these people don't want housing anyways. And it's like, Service no, they do. Yeah. They just don't Bullshit. trust that you're going to give that to them. One And it's really, yeah, it's so absolutely frustrating, especially when it comes to, you know, like I know this particular event isn't related to Hollywood, you know, per se. But the same week we're seeing, or actually for like, Basically, the entire month of December, uh, the, the Hollywood Boulevard is shut down so that they can have, you know, stupid movie premieres like Jumanji and the new Star Wars yep. and like all of that stuff. And you're kind of like, it's just frustrating to see that you're allowed to take over an entire street, disrupt everyone's days, shut down entire metro stops if you're Disney. And you're able to cut a big fat check to the city and be like, oh, yes, the unwashed masses will just have to deal with our glitzy red carpet premiere. But if you're just trying to live in a tent and you're not really harming anyone and you're not even blocking the street, you're seen as the enemy in a lot of ways. And we're spending massive amounts of resources to just make people's lives even more uncomfortable. It's really, I mean, we just keep getting mad about this, Chris, and I, I don't really see yeah. any other option uh, well, until we reach a critical mass of madness. And then finally Mitch is like, oh, God, I finally get it. Like he'll feel the tremor yeah. through the force. Well, so speaking speaking of uh, shutting things down in Hollywood, I actually would love to see the Hollywood Boulevard stuff be shut down on a more permanent basis. But of course, that shutting down would then involve the introduction of new infrastructure so that people are able to get around the uh, inconvenience of the Hollywood shutdowns that are done by the studios uh, and make it, you know, turn into a pedestrians area. So, I mean, yeah. like last week I was I was visiting my folks and they live very close to the 16th Street Mall in Denver, which is the uh, very much the, the same kind of a thing that you see in like the Santa Monica Promenade where a street that previously was used for cars was shut down 
and turned into either, a, you know, in the case of Santa Monica, a purely pedestrian street, or in the case of the 16th Street Mall in LA or in, uh, in Denver, which is significantly larger than the Promenade, uh, it it is now a bus only street with much wider sidewalks than normal, as well as a huge pedestrian friendly median um, that has little art exhibits and, and and garden things and shade structures and places for people to hang out and really is just genuinely delightful. And I would love to see something like that introduced on yeah. Hollywood Boulevard, which would then also make it very easy for them to set up these kinds of red carpet events because uh, people would have ways of getting around it. You'd still be able to run yeah. the buses. You'd be able to have much wider spaces that could be used for these kinds of galas without having to inconvenience every single person who's trying to make their way through Hollywood because you could plan for that rather than just being like, let's just take it over and turn it into this, you know, half the time anyway. Like, well, how do we make it so that it's a permanent thing? But, um, I'm getting back yeah, really quickly let, to the care yeah, and care let, plus stuff. I was going to say, so CCEG did some, or CCEJ did some stuff that wasn't completely terrible. They did make yeah. some like okayish decisions. It sounds like, and are finally like getting a move on bringing like better trash receptacles to Skid Row, Correct. which again people have been asking for for decades. So I guess yeah. better late than never, but. So it's, it's funny, though, because while it is a good thing, undeniably, that they put in rat-proof trash cans in uh, in the Skid Row area, I mean, honestly, they should probably be doing this everywhere because we have a massive rodent infestation problem, like, across the city. Like, I remember walking down uh, Wilshire right next to Vermont at that, uh, that now-defunct gas station uh, when they had a, a, a bit more shrubbery out on the corner there. The it was literally swarming with rats, like it was a moving floor of rats. You could not see the ground underneath them. There were so many rats there, uh, because people just dump shit there all the time. And the, the you know it's it's no longer a problem because they've ripped it all out and it's being turned into I guess a new CVS because we don't have enough of those. Um, but anyway, the 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 rat and um, other infestation problems that we have relating to uh, pests is pretty much due almost exclusively from my understanding to the illegal dumping of waste material by people who are not the unhoused population. I mean, yeah, there there's, uh, you, you see this nasty stuff published by the you know streets of shame and and other folks talking about how rats are able to to live off of human waste. Which, while that is true, the majority of the of the like organic material that these rats are consuming is coming from shop vendors who are dumping the cuttings from their yep. flowers or the excess produce that they have of these tomatoes that are you know starting to rot on them, and they're like, oh, I don't want to deal with this, and then they just dump it out on the sidewalk in Skid Row. Like, that's where these problems are coming from. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I applaud the efforts to put rat-proof trash cans in there, but until we really meaningfully address the illegal dumping situation in the city of Los Angeles, this is just putting a Band-Aid on a, you know, a massive wound to a, like, their carotid artery and be like, yeah, this is going to fix it. No, it's not going to fix it. Like, they need to take much more drastic steps. But another thing that was passed, uh, and this is coming right out of My News LA, quote, the committee also forwarded a proposed billboard program to alert residents in City Council District 6 about the city's 311 hotline that residents can call to report illegal dumping and to explore the possibility of tracking areas in need of cleanups throughout the city, end quote. So that is good. That is undeniably good. But also, it tends to be that people use 311 to report um, encampments, and that's really bad. So it's everything's a mess. Um, 
And also yep. worth pointing out so, here, we'll go more into this next week, but uh, Peter Lin has stepped down as the head of Lhasa after having his yeah. knees cut out from underneath him time and time again by both the council and the county board of soups. Uh, it's just, I mean, he, he was trying to do the right thing and I applaud a lot of his efforts, but uh, I mean, that's, that's a tough gig. That's a really tough gig. Like you've got no authority to actually do the things that you're supposed to be able to do because then you see situations like what we just described where sanitation is going out and undercutting all of the work that Lhasa is doing. Um, I wish him well on the things that he's, you know, whatever he pursues moving forward. Uh, I, I thank him for his good work. Uh, in trying to make these programs work better here. Uh, it, it, it didn't work. I don't know how much of that really falls on his shoulders versus the bureaucratic bullshit he was having to deal with coming from uh, both the county and the city because, you know, as, as LASA is a joint program operated under the jurisdiction of, of those two different entities, uh, it, it, was, it was an, uh, an incredibly difficult position, and I, I don't know what else to say on that one. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's move on. We have to update the uh, Ace and Sage uh, yes. report on vacant housing. Now, this one's interesting because um, while this one, while that report got pulled by Ace and Sage, uh, around the same time, a report came out of San Francisco showing pretty definitively that San Francisco has about five times as many empty units as it does people Which unhoused. Is so. Yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting to see what the updates to this report are exactly, but I'm still of the mindset that we do have more vacant units in the city of Los Angeles and probably in the county of Los Angeles than we have unhoused populations in either of those two areas. Now, obviously, the bulk of L.A. County's unhoused population is in the city of L.A., um, just because of the size of the city Something of LA like within the county it, yeah, and the right. density, mm -hmm. but uh, this report has been rescinded uh, for the time being. Um, it looks like there were some problems with the methodology, I guess. Yeah. So just to quickly give LAist their due, they are the ones who had initially um, covered the announcement of this report coming out of Sage and Ace, uh, and from the LAist quote last uh, was it last Wednesday we published a story, or rather Wednesday we published a story headlined. L.A. has more vacant homes than homeless people report fines. Shortly after publication, we identified some problems with the methodology behind the report. Within days, the authors took down the report or took the report down from the Internet and said they would issue a revised report sometime in the future. End quote. So um, from what I understand, the specific issues surrounding the methodology are related to the vacancy in some of the buildings in downtown, specifically relating to some numbers that reported around 70 percent vacancy in some of the buildings. Uh, that had just been opened. So, yeah, that, that's that's a fair criticism. They, these buildings, if they're just newly opened, it does take some time to get people to move in, um, especially with the kind of rents that they've been charging, uh, because not everybody can afford to do that. So it's you know finding that small clientele that are able to move into these buildings and pay as much money as they do. Uh, I mean, we're talking like $2,700, $2,800 for a one-bedroom apartment. Um, those take a little while to fill, and... It's probably understandable that they, you know, I think most of the buildings in downtown hit something like 90 to 95% vacancy, or sorry, 90, 90 to 95% occupancy, you know, with fluctuations in the rental market and all sorts of things all over the place. But that does happen after the buildings become established because downtown is still a very tight rental market where people are struggling to find vacant places to move into when they are looking for a new place to live. Like if you've well, tried to find an apartment also, in LA, it's a pain in the ass. 
Well, there's also questions, though, about what the, the occupancy rate in these buildings actually yes. means, especially when it comes to some that, that have a lot of condos in them, because those condos can be bought and not yeah. have somebody technically living in them. Yeah. So it's, it's a question as to whether or not they're actually people in those houses using those homes, whether yes. they're being used as pedateurs, whether they're being used for like short-term rentals. So that's one of the things that like the city could with a vacancy tax do Correct. is actually study and get hard numbers on that because we don't have it. And we're having to rely on developers to tell us how many people live in their building or how many of their units are occupied. So it's hard to get like a really good understanding of this. And until the city actually forces developers to put all of their cards on the table, we're not really going to get those numbers. So, you know, my sympathy with Ace and Sage for trying to gauge these numbers as best that they can. Um, it's unfortunate that this report had to be pulled um, and is probably, you know, it's pulling is probably going to be used by enemies of the vacancy tax to be like, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. But we really yeah. do need a vacancy tax. Like, Absolutely. we really do need to start making it and start taking the steps towards making, you know, being a landlord not about earning a paycheck, but about effectively providing shelter for people. Uh, because there are just way too many horror stories in the city. And the city of Los Angeles is underfunded all of the, the oversight. So we're still dragging our feet on a tenant's right to counsel and all that other stuff. But we'll dig into that more as, as we get into it, especially with yes. March coming up. Let's, uh, let's talk about the 8502 renewal, which yeah. is the ban on sleeping in your car, which, again, like, L.A. has thousands of people who literally live in their cars right now. And we have something like 900 parking spaces across the city where you can yeah. safely sleep at night without getting yeah. harassed by the cops or having your car towed. Yeah, so uh, here we go again. Um, so November 26, Bob Blumenfeld introduced a motion to further extend the car camping ordinance 8502 for another six months. He was seconded, of course, by council members Mitch O'Farrell and Monica Rodriguez. So uh, for some context on this one, um, Mike Bonin actually came out and was uh, talking to reporters as well as talking on Twitter uh, about how he opposes the reintroduction of this ban, setting up a potentially rarefied non-unanimous vote when the matter comes before the full chamber. We don't know when that will be. It has not necessarily made it onto any of the agendas yet, though it might be up for next week. So last time that this was up for a vote, one of our activist friends, Sabrina Johnson, was detained briefly. We thought that she might be arrested, but it turned out she was just detained for refusing to leave the chamber while we were protesting, chanting, for instance, shame at the city council for uh, continuing to ban sleeping in your car. Uh, a photograph of her being placed in handcuffs before she was taken into that holding cell in the building ended up making quite a splash on the cover of the LA Times. I believe it was the California section the next day. So yeah, we're going to see what happens with this one the next time around. But this as you pointed out, is 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 just a continuation. This is what this is what we've seen for for years now. Eighty five hundred two is just pushed forward for another six months uh, by these continuing resolutions of effect. These motions to just keep things rolling without actually addressing the the underlying problem of literally thousands of people having to sleep in their cars because they cannot afford to have an actual roof over their head and they have to live in their car because that's all they've got left. So it's. When it does come up, uh, and, well, and you'll see it on also, our Twitter city, and everything, and it's going to be fun. And mm. the, the city also like does this cowardly move where they don't want to enshrine it into law oh, completely, yeah. and so they're playing some bureaucratic games um, by just extending it as a rule, and I think that gives them some legal cover. Yeah, um, also, you know, when we when the when the state of California 
attempted to stop this kind of practice. It was basically the towing industry had their lobbyist write a resolution yeah. where the city of LA came out against it. So yeah, uh, this one's gonna be it's gonna be another huge mess, uh, especially as we're just dragging our feet on opening up uh, safe parking shelters. Bonin has said he would vote against eighty five oh two. I don't know that he'll be able to get enough people on his side to vote against it and stop it this time. But again, we have an election in March, and we get yes. to replace seven of these city council members. Yes. So there's a good chance that we could, you know, get an entirely new city council coming up by November and have people who are willing to take a stand against 8502. Um, yeah, yeah so let's... So. okay. Yeah, so let's talk about our bus shelters or lack thereof. Because if you ride the bus in L.A., uh, you understand how poorly maintained they are and like how uncomfortable it is to wait for the bus, which I would argue is a reason why a lot of people don't want to take the bus. Uh, because standing out in the sun and the rain and like not having shade or a place to sit is really uncomfortable and terrible. So uh, about... 20 years ago, I want to say, like maybe not quite that long ago, but the city entered into a contract with a company, J.C. DeKau. And basically, J.C. DeKau said, we will build you all of the bus shelters we want, provided that we can sell enough advertising to be able to afford it, which this is another one of those public-private partnerships that is designed to fail. And if J.C. DeKau, you know, doesn't fulfill their end of the contract, they still get paid for the bus shelters that they do, quote-unquote, maintain. Um, but yeah, so that contract is coming up for review. Some folks on, fit, on city council said, we don't want to renew it. Uh, others, it seems like, did want to renew it. Uh, but it also doesn't seem like we're going to be getting a bunch of new bus shelters anytime soon. Yeah, so basically this is, um, the, the LA Times referred to them as an outdoor advertising company, which is uh, very accurate. Uh, we could be seeing the extension of their contract from 20 years to uh, another 10 years, so 30 years total, relating to installing bus shelters, public toilets, which... Where the fuck are those? Uh, and street furniture. I, I, actually, no, I guess that the, um, I guess their name is plastered all over the green, um, like the four green public toilets that we have in downtown, uh, which are a massive, uh, massively popular and a, and a really a, a huge hit now that they've got the pit stop folks working them 24 seven. But uh, where, where's the rest? Like, why are they not everywhere? Like, we should really, 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 really be having these things all over the city, and they should be much more than just, like, a single stall that you can use if you wait in line forever. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the, the folks in the council took steps. Um, this was Friday last week. Um, I believe, or the week before Thanksgiving. I'm, I don't remember exactly, but they were looking to extend that contract. But uh, the disagreement um, showed up by, you know, council members Mike Bonin and Joe Buscaino uh, balked at the idea of renewing this contract, saying that we should really be putting it out for a bid for some new competition because obviously J.C. Decoe has not been uh, or Decau, however it's pronounced, has not been doing their job because there is a complete lack of, you know, protected bus shelters across the city. And this was actually highlighted very recently in the New York Times, where shade uh, and this concept of shade equity that we've talked about a, a few times in the past and really, you know, hit near and dear to me when I was looking at running for office. Uh, this is one of those things where the, the the shade distribution within the city of Los Angeles very much falls along 
uh, your socioeconomic boundaries as well. So yep. if you look at the, the streets in South Central and other areas that have been uh, chronically underfunded, as well as like Northeast LA and a bunch of these uh, areas where you, you get to hear the horror stories about the way that the cops are interacting with the local population, uh, the, these things are all interrelated. Like people do not have shade for walking on the sidewalks, which makes it very difficult to get around in the summer without, you know, potentially overheating or just having it be an extremely uncomfortable experience. And the same is true at places where you'd be waiting for the bus. You see lines of people standing in the little sliver of shade that's produced by like a traffic light or by a street sign. And that's all they have available to them. Or you hear about shop owners putting up uh, temporary, uh, you know, shelters for people with like hanging a tarp or a sheet to create some kind of an awning uh, and then getting yelled at by the city for putting up an illegal structure. Uh, the, the whole process is, is, is absolutely wild. And I mean, we've, we've talked before about the fact that the LAPD went through South Central and had them cut down all of these trees, all the, all these street trees, because they were, you know, wanting to be able to have better visibility for their damn helicopters for chasing, uh, purported criminals while, you know, they've got the squad cars screaming down the streets. So, uh, it's a mess and it, it's, it's really, Disappointing to see that, you know, J.C. Deco has really not fulfilled their obligations under this contract and really just fallen so far short of providing meaningful bus shelters, which are so desperately needed uh, to address the shade equity gap in Los Angeles. And to just, you know, th this is not just for shade during the summer. This is incredibly important when people are having to wait for a bus in the rain like we're seeing right now. It's incredibly uncomfortable for people to stand out there in the rain. Even if you've got an umbrella, like you're still getting a lot of uh, backsplash and you have to stand in an area where cars are running through these areas with poor drainage and then they potentially splash it up on you. Like we really, really need to be taking a much better approach to delivering bus shelters that are providing meaningful protection for people who are trying to take public transit. And we need to be doing more about just making our streets better and more approachable for pedestrians and, uh, you know, facilitating multimodal transportation so that people are not having to ride their scooters on the street or on the sidewalks rather, because it's, you know, much safer to be riding it on the sidewalk than it is on the city streets in a lot of circumstances. Though, if you are riding a scooter in LA in downtown LA and I see you on like spring or main or Broadway, uh, and you're riding on the sidewalks, I will probably yell at you for doing so because dude, there's bike lanes yeah. and there's lots of space on the shoulder on Broadway. You can be so much safer and so much less of a danger to the pedestrians that are, you know, walking around or setting up their street vending positions or anything else. Don't ride your damn scooters on the sidewalk. It's just, just not cool. Just not cool. Don't do it. Don't do it with your bikes either. Come on. Yep. I mean, anyway. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. Um, especially since the scooters can move very quickly and yeah. aren't exactly the most stable platforms to ride on. So when you're on a sidewalk where there's lots of bumps and other stuff in your way, like it's not, it's not good. That's what bike lanes are for. Uh, the next thing that we have to yep. overcome is all the idiots who are parking in the new bike yep. lanes, uh, yep. especially the double lane ones, but the city probably I have so many uh, pictures of, to... of highway patrol or sheriffs or LAPD parking in the middle of the freaking bike lane, well, blocking yeah. it. And it's like, well, dude, I was gonna... the parking space is on the other side of it. Why are you doing this? You, <laughs> I, when it comes to, when it comes to the cops, they're not going to follow the law. But when it comes to like regular civilians, <laughs> I think that they're kind of confused yeah. by where the placement of the meters are because like the parking lane yeah. is out on the other side, like the inside of the bike lane. 
And then on the outside, on the sidewalk, is where the meter is. So if you're not really familiar with what's going on there, you might park next to the meter because well, that's what you've been trained to do as absolutely. a driver. Um, like when the city does these renovations, they really need to do them like comprehensively yes. and not like in this piecemeal fashion that they have. So well, so the, one, one of the things to, before we move off of that one really quick, the, the thing that really irks me about, they put in these beautiful new uh, bike only lanes in, uh, two way bike lanes rather on spring and on main in downtown that go in this kind of loop thing. It's, it's interesting how they structured it, but anyway, it's great that they're there, but they half asked it with the bollards. Why did they just put these little bollards up that, you know, people can just get between with their car without any real struggle? Uh, they didn't make it in any way difficult for cars to get down through the bike lane, even though there you know, are ways, there's lots of space for people to be parking, lots of loading zones around, uh, in, around on the other side of these bollards. Why didn't they do something like what DC did when they put in their bike lanes and they put in these uh, cement, uh, basically parking berm-like structures that are you know more tapered on the corners and are wider and 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 longer and heavier and more substantive than like a parking berm at the front of a parking space but putting in things like that that are spaced close enough that cars won't try to just like wedge their way between them would have made so much of a difference in terms of protecting cyclists and keeping them safe from uh you know parking people who are parking illegally or people who are driving like idiots uh, like the, there are so many of these ways that are, are, are just little tiny tweaks to how the city is implementing these kind of programs that would make all the difference in the world for the cyclists, but they just half ass it and they put in these, these parking, uh, these, these little bollards that are served as virtually no protection. It's a little bit of a visibility thing and yeah, it'll make a thunk as you hit it with your car, but it's a hollow plastic tube with a reflective light on top of it. It ain't going to stop a car. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it, it won't stop an emergency vehicle that needs to get into the lane either, but neither would a little parking berm. Like these emergency vehicles have huge wheels and they will not care about running over a parking berm. Like just, just, oh, come on people do a better yeah. job. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's move on before you get too upset about uh, parking in downtown. <laughs> uh, so it's unfortunately the, bike lanes, the, uh, the bike lanes. yeah. Well, unfortunately, we've lost another local outlet. Uh, yes. The OC Weekly was the, you know, kind of lo local alt-weekly for, obviously, Orange County. Uh, it was independently owned and operated, and then it was bought out by Village Voice Media several years ago. Uh, Village Voice, after buying up pretty much every alt-weekly in the nation, realized that they can't run a media empire based on local alt-weeklies and decided to sell them off piecemeal. So this yeah. is how the LA Weekly got sold to uh, the venture capitalists or the, the private capital uh, group that now <laughs> owns it. Uh, the OC Weekly was <laughs> sold off to a sort of similar but different group. Yeah. And now they're done. Now the OC Weekly is no more. I was just going to say, the day before Thanksgiving, they tweeted, adios, motherfuckers. Today, the day before Thanksgiving, our owner, Duncan McIntosh, the Duncan Macintosh Company has decided to shut us down. For the last quarter century, century, we've tried to bring good stories to Orange County. It's been fun, but now we're done. End quote. Yeah, it's it's sad to see another all yeah. weekly bite the dust. I guess it's a little bit better than them being turned into the kind of like advertising for private capital outlet yeah. that the LA Weekly has. But like, this is a newsroom where everyone just lost their jobs. Uh, it's The alt-weeklies were also famous for giving a lot of journalists their start, yes. for keeping a lot of very interesting discussions like in the zeitgeist because places like the LA Times wouldn't necessarily feature the writings. 
Um, you know, Gustavo Ariano was running a column there. I think he still was. The Ask a Mexican column ah. um, was still going strong at the OC Weekly. But there's a lot of, like, culture that was built out of these weeklies that's just being eviscerated because we, in the 80s, we stopped seeing news as a public good, and it became a profit center. And we largely have, like, Rupert Murdoch and the Reagan Revolution to thank for that, you know, where what we care about in terms of media consumption isn't the veracity of the news or its importance to your life or the information delivered, but whether or not it's generating enough views to get the ad revenue yep. that we need to pay off the private capital de debt. And we see that over and over and over again. And it's, it's frustrating to me because we even see this at large outlets. Like uh, Laura Nelson from the LA Times was complaining yeah. on Twitter that the LA Times office, which they just share an office, they don't have their own dedicated office in downtown LA, uh, doesn't have central heating. Oh, yeah. The owner of the LA Times is a literal billionaire. Yeah. He's a literal billionaire. And the staff who is literally covering, covering the biggest city in the state of California, where our massive city government is situated, doesn't have an office and doesn't have an office that has its own heating. Yep. This is insanity. Like, the LA Times had their own building for a long while right across from City Hall, right by the library, and then they moved to El Segundo because that was cheaper. So now the coverage of the city of L.A. is happening in another city. It's so dumb, and it's so bad and toxic for all of us. Uh, so I guess just to round this out, like if you would like to see that stop, people getting you can give us money at knock because yes. we're trying to fix that, and we Absolutely. don't need to buy a building to do that. Like We're a real low overhead kind of operation, but that's got to be the option from here. We're Absolutely. not going to have like another large media outlet counterbalance the LA Times. We need to have lots of small local outlets that are publishing in all the neighborhoods that are easily accessible from wherever you're at. Like printed newspapers probably should go extinct. It's a lot of waste. Most people don't read the vast majority of it. More and more, the paper is just taken up by ad space because you need to pay for this stuff and you need to pay for, you know, the CEO's insane salary and for uh, the the um, uh, uh, what do you call them? Experiments. There we go. The experiments <laughs> of things like Tronk, the worst named media oh, venture in the history of media <laughs> ventures. Like, that's where the money is going. So, like, I encourage you to, like, subscribe to the LA Times Digital. Like, they have a unionized newsroom. Support their unionized newsroom. Um, but with the money you're saving by not getting the print edition, like, knock.la. We could totally use it to pay, like, just the writers. Like, we don't yeah. have a billionaire owner that's looking for an ROI. We don't have a board of directors that needs to get paid. We don't have a CEO who's trying to figure out how he can buy another, you know, super yacht. You know, worst case scenario, uh, we might have to pay for Chris to, like, ride a scooter every now and then. Like, we're, <laughs> we're not looking to, you know, spend this money really on ourselves, and we want to expand our coverage, and that starts with us being able to pay writers for their time. Like, that's the first thing that we want to do, and we're able to do that to an extent now, but we need to do that a lot more. So, Just to clarify really quick, I do not yes. need to use scooters anymore because now I have an annual Metro Bike Pass because they were on sale. Uh, that was my one Cyber Monday purchase was uh, saving half the money on an annual Metro Bike subscription. So now I can just ride the Metro Bikes everywhere I want to go for uh, 30 minutes for free. So that's dope. And uh, no more scooters for me. Thank you very much. And see, folks, we're only in the pocket of big mass transportation. <laughs> Those are the only people that own our allegiances. But yeah, like... 
help us build an alternative to this. Also, like Means yes. TV, really good use of your money. There's a lot Absolutely. of like good alternate outlets out there. Um, and it's it's if you want to start your own, like you can totally do that. Hell it yeah. takes a medium account and like a few hours a week to like just cover your own local city government to show up and do what you're doing. So if yeah. you're on Twitter and you follow people like Socialist Dog Mom, if you got the time to just start showing up for local meetings, this is how we rebuild like the media in this country. And yeah. it's what the creator of The Wire used to do when he was a journalist. And one of his big criticisms of modern journalism is, is as we gut the sort of like lower level journalism, the more local journalism, there's nobody watching the corruption yes. that's really happening. Yes. You know, when it comes to what's happening at City Hall... You can listen to KPCC and you can listen to KCRW, but they're really just going to like reprint the press releases that City Hall's putting out. Mm -hmm. You got to listen to LA Podcast and us to really hear the nitty gritty. And none of us are getting paid for this. Like, we're not trying to sell you mattresses or anything. And that really should be the future of media is informed, engaged citizens holding their public, local elected officials to account and making their lives kind of hellish because, like, our city's super broken. So if you're in city government, like, you deserve to be yelled at a lot. Absolutely. Um, but on that note, uh, let's go ahead and um, move on to our pickups. So, you know, yep. aside from the, the climate strikes that are currently happening, uh, there's some other stuff, uh, some other really, really interesting stuff coming up this week. Yeah, so as always, there is a Black Lives Matter weekly vigil on Wednesday at 211 West Temple Street in downtown in front of the Hall of Justice, as usual. Visual will always be starting at 4 and running until 6, unless otherwise noticed, and this is not out of the ordinary. So uh, be there at 4, uh, shout at Jackie Lacey, demand that she do her job, hold the space for the families of victims of state violence. Uh, it's incredibly important and powerful and recommend everyone come for at least one of those if they can and uh, try to show up as often as possible. So also we've got some Los Angeles Tenants Union meetings that are going to be happening this coming week. We've got the Hollywood Local happening from 7 to 9 at 1760 North Gower on Monday. We've got uh, the Northeast Local happening from 7 to 9 on Wednesday the 11th at Avenue 50 Studio. The North Hollywood Local is going to be is going to be having their meetings from 6.30 to 9 uh, at 57.30 Cahuenga in uh, North Hollywood. Uh, on Thursday, the same time that we have our ground game meetings, which also is the same time that uh, the South LA local has their meetings from 639 at the Southern California Library uh, and on Vermont. And then the East Side local also has their meetings. Everybody has their meetings on Thursdays. It's kind of fun. Uh, that's going to be happening from 630 to 830 at 30, 346 South Glass. Uh, 90033, that is the East Side Local. And of course, Ground Game has our Thursday meetings every Thursday from 7.30 until around 9 uh, at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, the information is up on our Twitter all the time, on our Facebook all the time. We post about it normally the day before, late the day before or the day of to remind folks that we have a meeting and come on out. We'd love to see you. And uh, also, there is going to be a big event happening on December 12th, uh, which is also going to be on Thursday, <laughs> uh, which is the Hollywood Workers for Bernie holiday party at El Cid on or, so Hollywood Workers for Bernie uh, holiday party. That's a fun mouthful happening at El Cid on Thursday, the 12th at 7 p.m. Tickets online through Eventbrite for 10 bucks. Uh, you can find a link to that in the description, or you can find it posted on the DSA Los Angeles Twitter feed, which is at DSA underscore Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, so 
As always, if you have any events that you want us to be publicizing, taking part in, or generally be made aware of, send us a message through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, or over on Instagram at Ground Game LA. And you can like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live streamed content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read stories from our comrades and sometimes the two of us dabbling a bit over at knock.la. If you'd like to read the sources that we are citing or quoting for yourself, check out a list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. Bushido, you want to take us out? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't really have much of an outro. Uh, I'm going to go strike and uh, yeah, go gum up the, the works at Phoenix City Hall. Uh, I hope you all had a great day being non-cooperative, and I hope you're ready for more of that because that's the only way we're going to win. Like, yeah. we have to stop with the playing nice, and at the same time, we've got to get out there and knock doors for the candidates that are going to get us what we want. So uh, thank you all very much for listening this week. I hope you all have a great strike, and we'll see you out there every week on the streets kicking up the dust. Hell yeah. Thanks, y'all.